Back in 2009, there were two guys, Joshua Glenn and Rob Walker, who designed a social experiment. Uh, they called it significant objects. It's a fascinating concept. What they did was they uh, spent a couple days raiding all of the thrift stores in their area. They bought a whole bunch of old knickknacks, hundreds of little things, junk, uh, insignificant things. Uh, in total, the hundreds of objects that they had cost them $128.74. So you know it was junk, right? Um, they then took those items, and their goal was to resell them on eBay by adding one thing, a story. And they hired a team of creative writers who wrote backstories for all of these individual pieces of junk. Some of them were humorous, some of them were sentimental, some of them were historical, all of them were fake. And they posted them on eBay. And over the course of four months, every single item sold for a total of $3,612.51. So if you're doing the math, that is an increase of 2,800%. Good return on investment. Um, now, I, I, we, we don't need to talk about the morality of the process. I'm not sure it was a good idea. But their hypothesis was fascinating. Their hypothesis was this. Narrative transforms insignificant objects to significant ones. Story makes something significant. And they were right. Story changed those insignificant things to all of a sudden become significant objects. We're story people. We're shaped by story. In fact, today we're going to look at what is arguably the most important story in the history of the world. It's certainly the most important story in Israel. It's the story that the entire nation of Israel was formed around. It's the story that was told over and over and over again through Israel. But I think an argument can be made that that story has had ripple effects that have gone out to every single uh, aspect of the culture. And throughout the globe, there are aspects of this story that become part of our lives. We're story people. And so in this section of Exodus, starting in Exodus 11, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to uh, actually be reading from Exodus chapter 12. Um, but starting in Exodus chapter 11, the narrative kind of changes. So if you've been with us, um, in Exodus 7, the plagues were introduced. And for three and a half chapters, nine plagues are recounted. Some of them are in a lot of detail. Some of them are just in short detail. The plague is talked about. The effect of that plague is talked about. Every piece of it uh, kind of works itself out. And, and then uh, they move on to the next one. Uh, kind of rapid fire, one after another, one plague, next plague, next plague, next plague, all the way through three and a half chapters of nine plagues. And now for three full chapters, the story of this final plague is going to be told, the impact of it and uh, what is happening because of it. The whole narrative slows and the story is told in detail so that we would learn to tell the story. And so I want you to listen to the story. Um, we're going to just take the section where God tells the Israelite people how to tell the story. We're going to listen to the, the very specific, and you'll find a bit repetitive instruction on how to tell the story. So Bill's going to come and read for us from Exodus chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1, going through verse 28. Uh, so would you listen as he reads? 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened 
In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what does this, you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we take all of these details and this complex narrative, would you help us to hear your spirit in the way that your spirit has laid this out for our shaping? God, we also desire to be shaped by this story. So God, would you do that in us? you guard my words, that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would penetrate our hearts. God, change us, make us increasingly more like you. And so God, speak to us, we pray, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in the midst of this complexity, you hear this story unfolding, uh, the story of what God is doing, what God is going to do, what God is promising to do. So I want to look first at the story of obedience, the, the story that that specific nation at that specific time was called to obey, and then the story of deliverance that came out of that obedience. So the story of obedience, story of deliverance, and then ultimately the bigger story that these stories are pointing to. So story of obedience, story of deliverance, and a bigger story. So um, it, it's important for us to try to place ourselves in the midst of this narrative. Um, it, we can look back on this thousands of years later, and it starts to make sense to us. We get like 
the, the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the doorposts, uh, do, doing this, going through the process, the unleavened bread, and all, all, of the, all the pieces of it make sense in retrospect. But I want you to try to place yourself in the nation of Israel at the time that this is unfolding. There's been nine plagues so far. Nine different times God has been faithful to do what he said he was going to do. Nine different times God did what he was going to do and they're still enslaved. And Pharaoh's heart is still hard. In fact, probably harder than it was when they began. There was no movement. Like God, God had done his thing, but it had brought no fruit. There was, there was nothing. And now God comes to them and he says, uh, verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So as Kevin was talking about, this is the beginning of God ordering time and, uh, and the calendar for Israel. He's saying, um, now this is where you start to mark this new. This is a new beginning. In fact, a couple of verses later, he says, you're going to continue to tell the story for generation after generation after generation. And, and then he says, I, I want you to um, do this certain thing with the lamb and the blood and certain kinds of bread and all of this structure. Remember, they're still slaves. Like they're, they're, they're having a feast in the midst of slavery. They're not delivered. There's no sense that they're... Uh, that, that God's already done nine things that haven't released them. Why would the 10th be any different? And yet, they're called to obey. Alec Motyer uh, talks about it this way. He says this, as far as outward appearances were concerned, the plagues had failed to achieve their purpose. And more than that, Moses had failed and the Lord himself had failed. The slaves were still slaves and freedom seemed as elusive and distant as ever. As you place yourself there, now try to imagine doing what God has called them to do. So Matyar continues, how could Israel have ever accepted that nevertheless this was a great new beginning and that of all unlikely, even absurd things, their deliverance would hinge on what they were to do with a lamb and its blood. Th this whole process is unfolding and they're called to simply obey. They're called to do what God called them to do. Three primary elements. You're supposed to have a lamb and the blood that goes with the lamb. You're supposed to have bitter herbs. Uh, if you've ever taken part in a Seder meal, uh, you've probably been given uh, like a really strong horseradish root. That's the uh, kind of the derivation of that bitter herb. It's a, uh, you, as you eat it, it's supposed to bring tears to your eyes. It's supposed to bring a remembrance of uh, the pain that deliverance can, cause, that can, can bring. Uh, and then there's unleavened bread. Um, uh, it's, it's like, it's really bad bread. Like if you've ever had matzah, it's terrible. It's really, it's really awful. Like it's, it's like the wrong way to make bread. So don't put the yeast in it. Uh, don't let it rise. Don't let it be like fluffy and yummy. Instead, make it like dry and terrible, right? So, so basically, um, they, the, as, as they talk about in the Old Testament, they call it the bread of affliction. That's actually a really good name for it. If you've ever eaten it, it feels kind of like affliction. Like it's, it's, and so what they're saying is like, okay, so you're slaves. You normally eat really bad food. Um, I want you to take a lamb and roast it. Really wonderful. Like you're going to eat this really like wonderful lamb along with a really nasty root uh, that's really bitter. It's going to make you cry. And some bread that barely can be called bread that's going to suck all the moisture out of your body. As a feast, do this as a, as a, uh, as a celebration of what God is going to do. 
Like, this is crazy. Like, they're hearing all of this. They had to be saying, like, I'm not sure that I get it. Like, walk through that again. Like, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? That's one of the reasons I think this is repeated over and over and over again. In Exodus uh, 12 and 13, it just keeps getting repeated. I I think they had to be saying, like, are you serious? Like, is this crazy talk? Like, what, what are we doing here? It was their obedience that was the key aspect of their deliverance. Um, The writers of the Echoes of Exodus, uh, they say it this way, it is about the power of faith worked out through obedience. Israelites' families, now listen to this, were not saved by their personal godliness that night or even by the amount of confidence they had in God. They were saved simply by the fact that the blood was over their house. That was it. So, So, Understand this. This is not a story of Israel having confidence in the God that will save them. This is not a story of Israel being better because they're not the oppressor. Those nasty Egyptians are the oppressor and they're the victims. That's not the story. The story is that God commanded them to do something that made no sense at all and they obeyed. Their deliverance came through their obedience. Faith became obedience through them. And the question is why? Why did they obey? I think the answer is actually relatively simple. They didn't have a better choice, right? Like they're slaves. They're, they, they're hopeless. They have, like, if they're offered an option, they're saying, well, I mean, what can it hurt? What are we going to be, more enslaved? Like more enslaved? Like, like we're already enslaved. Like Pharaoh already hates us. He already has a hardened heart towards us. We're not getting out of here. We might as well obey. And I think in that lies the first challenge that we have to wrestle with. Because a lot of us in 21st century America never get to the place of that kind of desperation. We we never get to a place where we actually feel the need for the power of God. Like, they're putting the blood on the doorposts Because they're saying, this is our only option. This is our only hope. But for most of us, we see the blood on the doorpost, we're like, those are religious fanatics. Those people raising their hands and dancing all around and all kinds of crazy. Like, these people are, like, they're they're out there, and I don't don't need all of that. I have a much more reserved face. I'm layering my faith on everything else that I have in my life. You know, if, if they didn't feel the need for God to come through, they wouldn't have put the blood on the doorpost. Because it would have been like, like, that's crazy talk. Like, why are we doing this? Like, for a lot of us, we would say, we would never say it out loud, but we would kind of, in our hearts, say, I, I'm glad that I have the, the faith that I have in Jesus because it rounds out the rest of my life. I think, I, I, I think being a Christian makes me a better person as a whole. But honestly... Like, I have a lot of talent, I have a lot of uh, resources, I have a decent bank account. Like, if I get in trouble, I can probably save myself. It, I, can, I can reach out to the right people, I can network in a certain way, I can, I can handle it. Like, I think the first question we have to ask is, would we be desperate enough to put the blood on the doorpost? And I think for a lot of us, the honest answer is, we're probably not that desperate. People ask me, uh, one of the questions I get a lot is, why on this side of the cross, having the, the victorious life that's promised to us through Christ, why do we still have confessional prayers? 
Like, I pray that, and it makes me feel, like, gross. I don't like that. Why do we do that? It's so vitally important for us to remember how much we need grace. If we don't get to that place of remembering the need that we have, Jesus just becomes a layer on our life. For the Israelites, enslaved by Pharaoh, there was no other choice but to trust God. It was not an internal faith that they put confidence in God. It wasn't because there was something in them that made them better. It was purely a matter of the, fa of the fact that they desperately needed God. And so, verse 28 says it really clearly. The people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They followed, they were obedient by faith because they were desperate. So that story of obedience leads then to a story of deliverance. Now it's important to remember uh, why God is doing what he's doing. So if you turn back, stick your finger in Exodus 12, and you turn back to Exodus chapter 7, God makes a really clear statement as to why he's doing what he's doing. So let me read for you in verse 4 of Exodus 7. It says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So the first thing he says is, I'm going to come and bring redemption for my people. I'm going to redeem you, my people. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. But then look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I, stretch my hand, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So what God's saying is it's not just about redemption. This is actually about revelation. I'm going to show myself to Egypt. They're going to see who I am. I'm going to reveal the futility of their gods as I show myself to be the one true God. So this is not just about a story of redemption. This is about revelation. And so you see both of those things happening. If you go back to uh, chapter 12, in verse 29, it says this, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. One verse uh, unpacks this horrific plague. Now, there's all kinds of questions that we don't have time to dive into as it relates to um, us uh, looking back, um, there, there's this fascinating thing that we tend to do. We take the morality that God gives us, and then we uh, judge God's morality based on the morality that he's given to us, which is a little bit uh, problematic anyway. But um, we don't have time to dig into all of that. The, the scripture writers give us one verse, and it's not celebrated. In fact, to this day, if you're going through a Seder meal, a remembrance of this event, this is a sober, sad moment in the whole process as there, there's a remembrance of the cost of deliverance. The, the fact of deliverance does not obscure the cost of deliverance. And that's true even as this is being written. Uh, the, the, the judgment is spoken. God is victorious and the people are free to leave. You see Pharaoh commanding them out in a very, uh, kind of a very short way. Here's what I want you to see. Um, in, in this process of deliverance, that morning when the sun rose, every single home has a corpse. It's either the firstborn or the lamb. Something had to die. There was a substitute that had to be in place. There was uh, death that happened in every home, whether it was the lamb or the firstborn 
That becomes the fact of the story in Exodus chapter 12. But it wasn't just redemption. Pharaoh did finally release the people in a very terse and direct way. He tells them to leave. But after he tells them to leave, the narrative gets to be uh, really unique. This is a, a piece of it that I, I've read this story so many times, and it was a piece that only has recently come out to me. Look down in verse uh, 38. It says this, the, says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So the people of Israel are journeying out, that's in verse 37, but in verse 38, it uh, expands the people of Israel to a mixed multitude, and theologians are almost united on the fact that this is saying, this is not just Israel leaving. The nation of Israel is going, but along with the nation of Israel, there's other people going too, likely other enslaved people that were coming with them. Um, we know, uh, we're pretty sure that Cushites, for instance, were a part of those who journeyed with the Israelites because Moses, in the book of Numbers, is going to marry a Cushite woman. Uh, likely after his first wife, Zipporah, died, uh, he marries another Cushite woman who was likely part of the Exodus. It's very likely that Egyptian people, who uh, God had revealed himself to, were also part of this. So this is not just redemption, this is revelation. What's happening is God is revealing himself to the nations, and as they leave, there's a, there's a clear declaration that it's not their nationality that has saved them, it's not their favored status because God likes them better, but it's actually their covenant status that unites them with the people. If you, if you keep reading, we're not going to go through all the details, but um, as you read through the end of Exodus chapter 12, there is a, uh, a reminder given that as you celebrate the Passover, there are certain people who are among you who are not Israelites who should celebrate the Passover with you. So if there are people who are just there because they're uh, part of your proximate community, they shouldn't celebrate the Passover. However, if there are people who by the mark of circumcision sow themselves to be a part of the covenant community, regardless of their national background, they should be a part of the celebration. There, there should be a, a connection. What he's saying here is that the covenant is what is creating this people. So uh, God has not just redeemed his people, He's also revealed himself, not just to his specific people nationally, but to the, the world. This story is shaping the, the globe. This story is shaping uh, all of the other nations and continues to to this day. And then there's the question of the blood. Uh, would it have worked for there to, instead of, uh, instead of lamb's blood, for there to be red paint marking the doorpost? You know, just take... Take some red paint and put it on the lintel and on the sides of the doors. Or um, shear the sheep and take the wool and kind of stick it around the outside of the door and mark it with wool. Is it, is it a marker so that um, the, the nation of Israel would be passed over? Or is there something else going on? Uh, th that's, a, that's a deep question because it, it, it's, it speaks to what kind of deliverance is happening. So Tim Chester uh, says it this way. The Israelites had to daub the blood on the doorpost precisely because they were as guilty as the Egyptians and so needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. The blood is daubed around the doors not because God can't tell who is inside the house, but because he can. He knows that there are sinners inside that house just like there are sinners inside of the other house. See, this is important for us to get because this is not just a, 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 a political 
uh, oppression that's being broken. It's not just that there is a, a deliverance from oppression that's happening. Uh, if, if all it was was political oppression that the people were being delivered from, a redemption uh, because of enslavement, the Israelite people would be innocent. They haven't done anything. Egypt is the oppressor. They're the oppressed. And so if all this is, is a, a, a redemption story, it could be red paint. It could be wool around the outside. It doesn't matter. You just mark the house. Write a big I for Israelite on there, right? It doesn't matter what it is. But if this is a different kind of story, then it requires blood. Chester continues this way. The sacrifice of the lamb means there is unfinished business. After all, who really thinks a lamb is a fair exchange for a human life? The lamb is simply a pointer. It's an embodied promise of a true substitute. The Passover is the sign of a greater act of redemption. Another way to say that last sentence is the Passover is a story that points to a bigger story. There's a bigger story that's unfolding here. And even though this Passover narrative would be the story that would shape the nation of Israel for thousands of years, it's pointing towards something larger. And we can tell because it's not red paint marking the doorpost. But it's the blood of the lamb. There's something else that's going on. If you keep reading into Exodus chapter 13, there's a whole section um, uh, that it kind of bookends the, the, uh, the teaching about the, uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, the, it's bookended by the idea of the consecration of the firstborn. So, um, so Dan and Alyssa are coming and bringing Jackson today, not to consecrate him as the firstborn, but as a, a family dedication. They'll do that with the secondborn and the thirdborn and however many children they're bringing along up here at some point in time. Uh, Dan just shakes his head. <laughs> because it, it's not a firstborn ceremony. But for Israel, starting then and all the way through history, the firstborn had a special consecration. There was a certain way that that story was, un, uh, was unfolded. Every time that firstborn was consecrated, it was a reminder that the firstborn had been passed over, that the lamb was not equal to the human life, that that firstborn belonged to God. So this past Wednesday was a holiday. Anybody know that? I don't mean Groundhog Day. That's stupid. I didn't mean that at all. I mean, there was another holiday this past Wednesday. Um, the, the holiday was Candlemas. Anybody heard of Candlemas? Any, anybody? Hey, all right, we got one. That's great. Candlemas uh, is, the, uh, is 40 days from Christmas, and it is the celebration and the commemoration of the day that Jesus was brought to the temple as the firstborn. So when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple in the Gospel of Luke, it wasn't just because he was a baby. It wasn't just that he was coming to be blessed. He was being consecrated according to Exodus chapter 13 as the firstborn, the firstborn that belonged to God. Just as that story has been told for 1,500 years, this is the first echo in Jesus' life. And throughout the history of Israel and throughout Jesus' life, the Passover story, the Exodus 12 and 13 story, get told again and again and again. As best we can tell, Jesus consistently practiced the Passover, and he would tell the story. First, I'm sure his story was told to him, and he learned the story, and then over time he began to tell the story. And we have record 
33 years later, that Jesus sat with his disciples and enacted this story. In fact, the, um, the core pieces that are given in Exodus chapter 12 have shadows into Jesus' story. So when Jesus uh, is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples in the Gospels, we see the bitter herbs in there. They're, they're uh, dipping into the bitter herbs. In fact, um, uh, the moment that Judas dips into the bitter herb, that's the marker that he would be the one to betray him. That bitter herb that is to remind us that, uh, that, that redemption brings tears, that there's sadness that goes with the joy. There's unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, the nasty dry bread that's been a part of the story throughout the years. Uh, it's a part of the narrative. What's fascinating is that none of the gospel writers say that they ate lamb with their Passover meal. Now, theologians um, have all kinds of different opinions on this. One of them is that uh, Jesus himself sitting at the table was the lamb, and so that's why the lamb was not recorded. But in a very practical way, it's, it's quite likely they didn't have the lamb because they were poor. They couldn't afford lamb. And so instead, the cups became the way that the story was told. And the cups represented the blood of the lamb. So each of the four cups of the Passover meal would be part of the way the story was told. So Jesus sitting with his disciples is shaped by the story of the Passover. And he begins to tell the story. And they're going along with him because they've also been told the story dozens of times, right? They've heard it over and over and over again. And so as he's telling the story, he comes to the part where uh, there's a stack of that uh, unleavened bread and he takes one of the pieces out and uh, that, that middle piece of the three gets pulled out and it gets broken. And as he breaks it, there's certain words that he's supposed to say that are part of the, the structure of telling the story. But as he looks around his disciples, he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. Every time you eat it, Eat it in remembrance of me. Remember me. Tell the story. Let this new story shape you. And the disciples have to be saying, like, what in the world are you talking about? That's not the, those aren't the words. Like, we've heard this story a lot. That's not, those aren't the right words. But they knew better than challenge Jesus, so they likely just ate the bread and kept going. Jesus held up the cup. Most theologians believe it was the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup that signified the blood of the Lamb. And instead of telling that story, Jesus held up the cup to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's actually using a phrase from the prophets that talked about the way that uh, the, w when the Messiah came, that the, the, the new covenant of God would rewrite the truth of God on their hearts, that their that heart of stone would become the heart of flesh. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many. As often as you drink it, tell the story. Do it in remembrance of me. Remind one another of what's true. For 1,500 years, the Passover story had shaped the Israelite people. And now, 2,000 years later, the Passover story continues to shape the people of God. But it shapes us, not by the blood of a lamb covering a doorpost, 
but by the blood of Jesus himself, giving himself for us. The story brings us to a place where through obedience we say, we, we need him. I need him. Not because I have it figured out, not because I've qualified in some way, not because I have a strong enough mental ascent, but because I recognize I can't deliver myself. And so I obey. Deliverance comes not just by an act of God in heaven somewhere because he snapped his fingers, but because the firstborn died. And through that death, we are given life. And so Jesus tells his disciples, tell the story. Be shaped by that story. So in the same way, we, every time we come back to the communion table, tell the story. And regularly, we come back and we say again and again and again, this is his body broken for us. This is his blood poured out for us. And that story starts to shape us. That story starts to change the way that we see the world. We start to recognize that um, we're, we're not better than or above, but instead we are redeemed by and given hope. We are distinct in the world, not because of us, but because of him. And that story being told becomes the narrative that we tell the world around us. And just as the act of deliverance was not just redemption, but revelation, that same thing's true for us. We hear the truth, we're shaped by the truth, and we declare the truth to others because that same story is true for them. And so I want to invite you in a very deliberate way to come and hear the story again, to come to the Passover table and to receive the broken bread and the cup and to remember the story. And so I'm, I'm going to ask if uh, you're serving communion, if you would come and take the elements around the room and the worship team is going to come so they can lead us as well. And as they do, I just want to give you a few words to consider as you come to the table. There'll be stations all around the outside, and you'll have the opportunity to go and to receive at any one of those stations. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the opportunity for you to hear that story retold, to tell it again, to um, remember and to be shaped by it. And so I want to encourage you to go and to listen. And as uh, you're given the bread... A very simple story is going to be told to you. Something along the lines of, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And as you take the cup, again, a simple story will be told. It's the blood of Jesus poured out for your sins. And you'll eat and drink and remember. In both the front pews right after the break in the back, as well as the front pews here, there are baskets where you can dispose of the cups and you can remember as we... Uh, once again, tell one another the story. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me say a couple things to you. The first one is really, really simple. Um, you're, you're invited. This is the story, and you're invited into it. Um, there, there's no qualification. Um, there's no, uh, no thing that can exclude you. Um, because this isn't about you anyway, you don't have to earn your way in. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get yourself right. The whole story is the blood of the Lamb. And so you're invited. 
Um, there'll be some prayers up on the screen, and uh, one of those prayers will say, God, I'm ready to follow you. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know all the other stuff. You may have a lot of questions about the church. I have a lot of questions about the church, too. It's okay. You don't have to have all those answered. All you have to know is that you need redemption outside of you, and Jesus has offered it to you. That's it. You can figure out all the rest of the questions later. And so if that's where you're at, I want to invite you to pray that prayer or something like it, and then come to one of these stations and receive. But if today's not the day for that, for you, then I want to uh, encourage you to pray the second prayer that's there. Um, and that second prayer is basically just saying, God, I want to know more. Help me to see. Help me to understand this truth. I'm not sure I get it. And I'd encourage you to pray that prayer as well. And then, as you do, just watch. And you'll see, as people go to each of these stations, that we're story-shaped people who are being shaped by this story, this redemption story. Last thing I want to say is to those of you who are followers of Jesus, if you come today and you recognize there's an area of your life that you have steadfastly refused to let Jesus speak into, I, I'm not saying that you come with sin. If you come with sin, you are qualified to come. And if you feel that you're not coming with sin, you're probably not qualified to come. So um, sin is necessary for the table. But what I am saying is if there's an area of your life where you have said, uh, I will be Lord instead of you. I, I, I make the rules here. Um, I, I would encourage you to take this time to really process that. I, I liken it to uh, a two-year-old who says to their parents, you're not the boss of me. Like that never goes well, right? Like in the end, they always find out that was a bad statement to make. Same thing's true for us. When we say to the God of the universe, I'm a better God than you, sooner or later we find out that we're wrong. And this is a good time for you to come and preempt that. To remember that uh, indeed, he is Lord of all. And so if that's where you're at, I would encourage you to take this time to come before the Lord and to bring that back before him. Uh, before you come to the communion table or even instead, uh, that's the most important thing. Final thing I want to say is as you're coming to communion, for some of you, you may say, I, I just really want to be able to, to take a step forward and respond, to, to put a, a stake in the ground. And if that's where you're at, I want to invite you uh, after you come to the communion table, you're welcome to come to either of these altar rails to come and to pray. On this side, uh, we would love to be able to gather with you and pray over you, um, anoint you with oil for healing, to be able to pray very specifically in ways that you want to uh, ask us to pray, and we'd love to do that. On this side, it's just an opportunity for you to be quiet before the Lord, and sometimes just moving forward and being willing to take that step forward is a significant action, and so I want to encourage you to do that. And so if you want to respond... Uh, we want to invite you to do that as well. But let's take this time to remember the story. We're story-shaped people. Let's hear the story as we uh, come to the table. Let me pray over us. Jesus, we are thankful for the story that you have given to us. We, are, we recognize as we come to the table the great need that we have and the great celebration it is that you have met that need through Christ forever. That um, that the sacrifice no longer needs to be made because the sacrifice is finished. That the blood that covers us will keep on making us clean. And so Jesus, we come to the table, we remember the story, and we go out from here declaring the truth that you have given us hope through Christ. And so meet us at the table, we pray by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As you're ready, Please come to the table and let's rejoice.